to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. As was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let no man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, this morning, Jesus takes up the topic of marriage, and so we will too. So here's our uh, opening question, okay? Uh, this might be a good one for you to discuss with your spouse if you're married. It might be a good one for you to ask a married friend. Uh, it may start a fight or it might be a good laugh. I'll leave this all up to your discretion, okay? Here's the question. When was the first time you realized the person that you married was not the person you thought you married, okay? Like when did that realization first strike you? I asked a couple of my buddies this question this week, thinking about this sermon, and one of them wrote back, um, you know, about a year into my marriage, my wife declared to me one morning that she was done eating meat and she wanted to be a vegetarian, which was a 180-degree turn from, like, their dating life. They were out at restaurants eating all this good stuff. And my, my buddy sat there for a minute. He's like, oh, my gosh, what? wait, D- bacon? Does that include bacon? She's like, no bacon. And it just, like, you know, devastated him. He was, felt totally deceived. For Janet and I, um, it only took a few months for us to figure out that our, our sort of temperature happy places were on opposite ends of the spectrum. I don't know if you guys have uh, known what I'm talking about or not, but I'm always hot, like always, and re- spend most of my life sweating. And Janet is always cold always. And uh, she never sweats and is comfortable in absurdly hot conditions, like would thrive in Moab, you know, um, all year long. And so she looks at me and she says, gross, why are you always sweating? And I look at her and I say, what's wrong with you? Do you have some sort of skin condition? How are you alive? How do you regulate? Um, And marriage is filled with these sorts of realizations, right? Some of them are funny and some of them aren't funny, right? Uh, An author named Lewis Smedes once wrote that my wife has lived with at least five different men since we've been married, and all of them have been me, okay? Anyone who's been married for more than a year or so can tell you it's much harder than expected. There's a reason the fairy tale tends to end at the wedding, right? So uh, marriage is the most intimate human relationship, and this means that it contains all the greatest joys as well as the greatest grief. It strikes at our deepest longings to be known, fully known, and yet still fully loved, but it also exposes our deepest fears. There's nothing easy about it. 
It's a nitty-gritty, everyday, fighting, rejoicing, mundane, difficult, glorious kind of relationship. And this is the topic that Jesus wants to take up today for us. Now, uh, just a caveat, I guess. It's worth saying up front that even if you're not married, what Jesus says here applies to you and is relevant to you. You may have been married. You may be married one day. And even if you are single for your entire life, you're surrounded by marriages. There are marriages in this church family. There are marriages in your extended family, your neighborhood, your friends. And they affect your life and you affect theirs. And the gospel truths that shape and and sort of create and cultivate healthy, life-giving, other-oriented human love that we're going to see in this passage, it spills beyond the bounds of marriage, too. This is the kind of love that really can shape and deepen all of our relationships. So in this passage, as we jump in, this is what we're going to see. The, The Pharisees are going to try to draw Jesus into a debate about divorce, okay? But he's going to bump the whole conversation up to a discussion of God's design for marriage. And then this debate and this design are going to highlight the real core, deep problem of marriage. And so to wrap up, we're going to look at the power for marriage. So a debate, the design, and then the power for marriage. A debate about divorce. The Pharisees, uh, if you've spent any time in the Bible or any time in church, you know the Pharisees are like the bad guys, right? Okay, bad guys. Um, They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were prideful. They were fundamentalists. They were a conniving little bunch of guys, and they were mainly concerned with maintaining their own power and using and abusing people however they needed to to keep it, and that's putting it nicely. All right, Jesus actually has much harsher words for the Pharisees than even what I just said, and so when they come to ask Jesus a question, they're not actually trying to learn anything. They're not trying to grow in their spiritual life. They're not trying to seek his wisdom. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him and um, figure out a way that they can put him in a tight spot. And today, their plot was to try to get him to say something politically compromising about divorce. Remember a few chapters back in Mark, we looked at this when, um, so Herod's wife Herodias has John the Baptist beheaded. Why? Because he's talking about her marriage, her divorce, and her remarriage. Okay? This is kind of the same thing the Pharisees are going after for Jesus. If we can get him on record saying something that she doesn't like, that could go very badly for him. And it could go very good for us. So they go to Jesus and trying to sound as casual and innocent as possible. Hey, Jesus, you know, the guys and I were just having this uh, super interesting conversation. And uh, we have different opinions on this point. What's your take? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus replies, as he often replies in the Bible, he answers their question with a question, right? And he says, what does your Bible say? Good question, good follow-up. And their question, this debate, is drawing on different views that the Jewish schools of thought had at the time based on a passage in Deuteronomy 24, which they mention next. They say Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, this is true. Deuteronomy 24, in in that passage, God through Moses, we're not going to look at it this morning. You can look it up. Uh, But God through Moses gives Israel a law that requires a husband to get a certificate if he wants to divorce his wife. And the debate at the time, this is more information than you really want to know or need to know, but 
Hang with me. The debate at the time was how easy should it be to get this certificate? So there were two schools of thought. The Shammai school were the conservatives, and they said the only way you should really be able to get this certificate is through marital unfaithfulness. Okay? Then there was the Hillel school, the liberals or the progressives, and they said, no, 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 pretty much any reason that a man, important point, a man wants to get a certificate of divorce, uh, he can get it, right? Even going so far as to say, and this is on record in the ancient documents, even going to, so far as to say, like, if she spoils one of your dinners and doesn't cook it the way you like it, you can go ahead and get a certificate of divorce. Okay, these are, these are stand-up guys we're dealing with here, real model guys. So Jesus, what do you say? Are you a conservative or are you a progressive on this one? And Jesus has no intention at all of playing their game and entering this debate. He says, if that's the question that you're asking after reading Deuteronomy 24, you have totally misread your Bible. See, the Bible does not commend divorce. It never encourages divorce. It does allow for it. In certain extreme cases, adultery, abuse, abandonment, when the marriage covenant has already been functionally destroyed. But even then, even in the worst cases, God helps try to limit the damage that is done after a divorce, especially to the most vulnerable party. And in this culture, and at this time, as we know, that was women. We know this time in history, women had very few rights and very little power. And so God put this law in Deuteronomy 24 in place to actually limit the husband's abuse of power in that culture and to give women more rights and more voice than they had ever had before. Deuteronomy 24 is a law to limit the damage of a divorce and to give women more rights and voice. It was never intended to be prescriptive or instructive. It's not meant to be an example of what you should do Using it to justify divorce, to make divorce okay or easy or accessible like the Pharisees are here is actually the exact opposite of the point of the passage. It's sort of like this. It's sort of like if you were going to try to learn to fly an airplane, but you only studied crash landings, okay? So is it important for a pilot to know how to crash a plane well? Well, yeah, right? Unfortunately, it is. Like, Things go terribly wrong, and it's important for our pilots to know how to limit, limit the damage so that more people can walk away with more health after that trauma. But if you limit your flying lessons to just learning how to crash, you're going to be a terrible pilot, right? Because you're never going to actually learn how to fly a plane as it was intended to be flown, and therefore you're going to crash more often. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're like that. If you limit your discussion to marriage about how I can get out of this marriage when I get uncomfortable or it becomes hard or I don't like the dinner my wife cooked, then you are going to be a terrible husband, right? You're not considering how to nurture the very design of what it was meant to be. That command in Deuteronomy 24 was not written to let you do whatever you want when you want to do it. It was written because when given power, we as people abuse it. Because we lean towards self-centeredness, because we lack naturally, we lack other-oriented service and love, because we're hard-hearted. Our heart doesn't work right naturally. Verse 5, he says to them, that was written because of your hardness of heart. 
Moses wrote that commandment. Now, um, two things to notice here before we move on. Um, The first is this. Here and elsewhere in the Bible, um, the Bible teaches that divorce is a trauma, okay? That that for reasons that we're going to see in a moment, and separating a marriage covenant is one of the hardest, most traumatic things that can happen in a human life. Divorce is damaging, but sometimes it's necessary. It's tragic, but sometimes it's the only way. It's never the first, second, or fifth option, but it is inevitable in some cases. And so when divorce happens, we should grieve the death of something good while also showing great compassion for those that are involved. See, Jesus himself was extremely gentle with the divorced. When, when he interacts with the woman at the well who'd been married and divorced five different times, does he challenge her? Yes, but he loves her so deeply. I mean, he respects her and invites her into the wider family of God. He says, you've lost your earthly family. Come and join my eternal family. This is where the well of living water is. He doesn't dismiss her as damaged or irredeemable in any way, but he does not treat her as a second-rate citizen in the family of God. And as his followers, we can simultaneously, like Jesus, hate that divorce happens and care and, um, and have great compassion on those who have suffered that trauma or are going through it. Okay? Second thing is this. Jesus exposes the self-centered heart behind the Pharisees' question. Uh, this is just Jesus being awesome, okay? I mean, this is like jujitsu, Jesus. They come to him trying to expose him to political threat or to even like pr- imprisonment and execution, and he takes all of their momentum and spins it on them, and now at the end of their conversation, they are exposed, aren't they? Their hearts have been exposed for what they really believe, and what they believe is that their marriages are ultimately about them. They didn't see marriage as a relationship of possibility where they were given the chance day after day to pour out their lives loving and serving another person. Marriage for them was a relationship of convenience and comfort about their own happiness first, their own life goals and hopes first, their own needs. And when they were not being met as expected, they were looking for an out. And it is so easy, again, so easy to dislike these guys. I mean, I hope I can say this in a sermon, but like they really are tools, okay? These Pharisees, like they're not good guys and it's so easy to dislike them. And because it's so easy to dislike them, it's so hard for us to see that we're just like them, aren't we? I mean, we are just like them. Even when we we may not be plotting anyone's murder, we may not be looking for an out in our marriage, but by default mode in marriage and in life, We're concerned about ourselves first. That's just how we wake up in the morning. And even when we don't want to, um, we live by that old Hollywood byline, but what have you done for me lately, right? Not even what have you done for me in the history of our marriage or the history of our relationship, but what have you done for me lately, like in the last day or two, right? Even when we don't want to, we're keeping score in our marriages. The point totals are counted differently from one season Uh, to another, from one person to another, but we can't not keep score. 
It might be the trash runs or the diaper changes, depending on what uh, time of life you're in. It might be the free time or the dishes. Um, It might be initiating dates, whatever it is. It could be that deeper stuff that's harder to tally, but sort of sits in the back of our mind like a filter. Am I being fulfilled in this relationship? Does this person make me happy? Do they deserve me and all I am for them and all I do for them? We're doing marriage with ourselves in mind first. We're doing all relationships with ourselves in mind first. It's just default mode. Okay? It's just being human. If you're here and you're breathing, this is you. This is me. And so when Jesus says to the Pharisees, your hearts are hard, they don't work right, you're thinking of marriage backwards, doing it against the very design and the purpose I made it for. Honestly, we need to hear what he says next as much as them. We need to hear and rehear the design of marriage. And when Jesus explains the design of marriage, he goes back to the very beginning, quoting from Genesis 2, uh, starting in Mark 10, verse 6. He says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then it's cool. Jesus basically is like, commentating on the scripture that he wrote thousands of years earlier in this scripture, which we're reading thousands of years. It's great. And then he goes on to say, and he, he comments on that idea of one flesh. Therefore, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God himself has joined together, not man, what God has created, let no one separate. Everything about the beginning of marriage, this first marriage ceremony that God initiates, that he oversees, officiates, points to the fact that outside of our relationship with God, marriage is one of the most profound, influential relationships on this side of heaven. Uh, and as a pastor, this is one of the great privileges of being a pastor, right? You get, I love doing weddings. You get front row seats. It's one of the most important points in a person's life. And you get to say to them in front of everybody, this is what's happening today. And one of the things I always say is that when we leave here today, God will have created something new in the world that didn't exist when we all walked in here today. It's like we're collectively witnessing a miracle, the creation of a new thing a new family, a new union that didn't exist 30 minutes ago when we all got here. Something new will exist in the world. God asked that a man and a woman leave their parents to create something new. Marriage, according to the Bible, it's a legal, permanent, and exclusive commitment of one man and one woman to one another. Marriage is a covenant. And that word, one flesh, it means united with, meshed with, stuck together. Marriage isn't simply a declaration of the love that we have for each other today. Um, Marriage is an unbreakable promise of future love, future commitment, regardless of the circumstances. Now, that is a huge claim. Regardless of health, regardless of wealth, regardless of any circumstances at all, it's a promise before God and the community to love one another with our whole being, in an other-centered, selfless sort of way. And to do this, no matter what happens to either of you. It's a promise that your spouse takes priority over every other person in your life, even parents and kids and work and friends and jobs and adventures and comforts. It's a reordering of the priorities of our life. And it's not based on our emotion 
or even our best intentions. It's based on a promise. It's a covenant. Permanent, legally binding, exclusive promise to love. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said it well when he said, it's not your love that sustains your marriage anymore, but now it's your marriage that will sustain your love. Marriage, in other words, is a blank check. Okay, when you get married to someone, you're signing your name on a piece of paper, literally. I mean, that's like you literally sign the piece of paper, but you don't know what the costs are going to be that get filled in on the expense line of that check. You do, that's the real challenge of marriage. I mean, how do you know you are ever going to be able to cover the costs that another person racks up on your account? How do you know you're going to have the resources to love them and to serve them no matter what happens? You don't know what's coming. You don't know what's coming. Your spouse could fall off her bike. Oh, man. Mm. Sorry, every time I put this in a sermon or mention it, I start to cry. I should stop doing that. Uh, Your spouse could fall off her bike in San Diego, and uh, she may live with brain damage the rest of her life, or she may walk away perfectly fine. And you don't know. You don't know which one would happen. You don't know if you're going to wake up one day in 20 years and have drastically different visions of what your life should be and could be. Um, You don't know what sorts of challenges you'll have with kids and money and jobs. You don't know where you'll live. The commitment and the promise of the covenant is to love someone no matter what happens in any of those other places. Marriage is a permanent promise to be more committed to another's good without having any idea how they will turn out to be or how you will turn out to be. No escape clause, no out. Total upfront commitment. It's a blank check. Now, when I worked with college students in Northwestern, I would kind of, you know, I'm speaking to a room of single people, but I'm teaching them about marriage because this is what they're hoping for, looking towards. And um, when I get to sort of this part in the sermon, like writing a blank check to another person, their eyes start to get big, and they're kind of leaning back, and their face goes pale, you know? And they're like, why would anyone sign up for this? Like, why would... I'm talking to a room of single people. Why would anyone in their right mind write a blank check to another human being not knowing how it could turn out? And it's a good question. Why would anyone do this? Maybe some married folks in the room are asking the same question. Why would anyone do this? And here's why. Here's the design of marriage built into that very covenant, the design of marriage, when we give up our freedom to be committed to another person, is that Jesus promises to grow a deeper freedom in us than we would have, that we could not have had any other way. That slowly over the long run, exactly because of the safety and security of those covenant promises, you and your spouse will grow in your capacity to love one another more fully than we have could have loved another person before. Why? Because now we're free to fail and to fail badly and know that we're going to still be loved and forgiven, right? We're free to be sinned against and to be sinned against badly and to learn to forgive another person unconditionally. Without the covenant, without the the certainty of that, without the marriage that sustains the love, that kind of freedom it's really hard to find. It is possible to find it outside of freedom. God, God provides avenues for his people to grow into these things, whether they're married or not, but that's the design of marriage. That's what it was meant to accomplish. 
It's actually constraints of the covenant that produce the freedom to love. An unconditional commitment to another's good over and above your own for as long as you live designed to actually nurture the kind of other-oriented love that we don't naturally have. All right, so to summarize so far, marriage is God's beautiful design to cultivate an other-oriented love in our hearts. And we're all selfish people married to selfish people, okay? Do you see the problem here? Uh, This, in a nutshell, is the problem of marriage. It's designed so that we can grow in other-oriented love and so that we can experience other-oriented love. And yet, we're all still self-centered creatures every day that we wake up. How do we solve the unsolvable problem of marriage? Let me just say, right here in the sermon, it would be very tempting for me to pass along a whole bunch of marriage wisdom to you, okay? And there's great stuff out there. There's incredibly wise people who have been married for a long time and have done this really well and have wisdom to share with us. So we could talk about love languages and the ability to communicate with grace and encouragement to your spouse. We could talk about killing comparison and not letting the grass is always greener syndrome grow in your heart. We could talk about praying together and family worship and x-ray questions that get at, to help you know and understand your spouse's heart. And we could talk about cultivating a spiritual friendship and naming one another's glory. And all of that would be helpful. It would be helpful. And if this wasn't just a single sermon on marriage, if this was like a series or a class, which we'll do at Grace at some point, we'll dive into all that stuff because there are helpful, practical tools to help cultivate our marriages. But here's the thing. A new technique or a new strategy or a new habit is not going to solve that deep conflict in marriage, that real problem that it's designed to help us love another in an other-oriented way, but we all wake up as self-centered, hard-hearted people. We don't need new instructions. We need a new heart. We don't, we don't need a new technique. We need a whole new power for marriage that's only available in the gospel of Jesus. In a letter to the Ephesians Paul dips into some marriage counseling in chapter 5. It's a great chapter. And in verse 32, he writes, Marriage is a profound mystery. No kidding, pal. All right? And then he finishes the verse this way, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a mega mystery, is what that Greek word means. And I'm saying that marriage and Jesus help explain one another. Okay? We can't make sense of our marriages, let alone have the resources for them, without Jesus. And Jesus says our marriage helps make sense of him. The Bible calls God's people the church, his bride. And interestingly, it also calls us whores. Okay? It calls us the unfaithful lover in this relationship. And we are the adulterous one. We are the problem in our marriage to God. I mean, whatever the worst thing that could happen is in our human marriages, it's already happened to Jesus. He's been stuck in the worst marriage of all time, and not just for a few decades, but for millennia, right? Why? Because he's married to us. He's married to those with the wandering hearts who are constantly going out to look for joy and love and hope in places besides the only place it can be found, which is in him. And yet Jesus has committed himself to his he's committed himself to his bride in a covenant of grace, a marriage covenant. 
an eternal, permanent, exclusive covenant to his church. And this is the heart of the gospel. Christianity isn't just believing God exists. And it's not just believing the Bible is, is true. Christianity teaches that God marries the sinners that he saves and that he binds himself to us. He becomes one with us. He meshes with us, sticks with us, so that neither he nor we can get out of it. Okay? It's a covenant of grace. Your problems become his problems. His riches become your riches. We are married to our Savior and our King. And at the very end of the story of the Bible, there's a wedding feast, a marriage feast, where his bride is finally, after millennia of a bad marriage, finally made right and whole and good. And the future of Christianity, the future of the world, is a joyful marriage with God forever. If you accept this marriage offer, if you bind yourself permanently and exclusively to God, if you believe that he has bound himself permanently and exclusively to you, then the power of his marriage is at work in you. Okay, not, not a mere, mere human marriage, but an eternal one. So the source of that covenant love that's supposed to animate our marriages, animate our relationships, is available in him. You are always loved. You are always full. You are always seen. You are always valued. You are always encouraged in your marriage. Maybe not your human one, but you are always loved in your marriage with the Lord. So by binding himself to us permanently, exclusively, legally, covenantally, what Jesus has done is freed us to love others in a way that we don't have to be we don't have to receive that same sort of love in return to be full because we're already full. We're loving others, we're loving our spouse, our neighbor, our friend out of an overflow of the resources of a covenantal marriage that is pure and perfect and eternal. And I don't know how else that's possible. Without the gospel, I don't know how else you can write a blank check to somebody and actually continue to love and serve them for a lifetime unless you yourself are filled with the love that only the gospel can provide. So the way we invest in our marriages, the way we nourish them, the way we grow them, the way we invest in our friendships and our relationships with anyone of, anyone of all kinds is to rest in the covenant love of Jesus, our great husband, our great lover, our great friend, and out of the overflow of the love we have there, we can move out into the world to love and serve those around us. It's the power of marriage that solves the problem of marriage. It's God's great design for our marriages. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thanks for this word to us this morning. Um, You've designed a beautiful thing. In marriage, you've designed a way for us to experience and participate in the covenant love that you've poured into the world. Help us serve and love one another. Help us experience the great love and grace that you have poured out on our behalf by marrying us and bringing us into your family. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.